Hello and welcome to Pedra's Points of Discussion podcast. I am Jen Dawson, Pedra's Associate Director of Educational Programs, and I am back in Season 2 with our Drugs and Bugs Focus Study Group. This session is going to focus on EM, RHYME, SJS, and TEN, the alphabet soup of severe blistering cutaneous adverse reactions. Make sure you've subscribed to the Pedra Pearls podcast channel to listen to all of our programs. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Pedra Research. And if you are interested in learning more about our Drugs and Bugs Focus Study Group, head on over to www.pedaresearch.org. Now, a couple of disclaimers before we begin. It's important to note the views and information expressed during this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance or the program presenters. The purpose of this podcast is to be thought-provoking and to stimulate new ideas, new collaborations, and novel research. Any reference to medical treatment or disease management is for this purpose only. It is not an endorsement by PEDRA or its presenters and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Any decisions related to medical care should be made in consultation with a qualified healthcare provider. I would like to take a moment to introduce your program presenters. The moderator for today's program is Dr. Michelle Ramin. Dr. Ramin is a clinical associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Calgary. She is also a clinician investigator at Alberta Children's Hospital. Dr. Ramin co-chaired PEDRA's 10th annual conference back in November of 2022 and has worked on countless research projects within PEDRA and is currently serving on PEDRA's Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Committee. Lastly, she is the chair of PEDRA's Drugs and Bugs Focus Study Group. Joining Dr. Ramin is Dr. Yvonne Chu, Professor of Dermatology as well as Vice Chair and Medical Director of Pediatric Dermatology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. She also has co-chaired past PEDRA meetings and has been a key member of PEDRA for many years. At last and certainly not least is Dr. Aaron Mathis. Dr. Mathis is a professor of dermatology at the University of California, San Francisco. She's been a longtime PEDRA member and has previously co-chaired PEDRA's Best Practices Task Force. At this time, I would like to announce that Dr. Yvonne Chu has no relevant disclosures to this discussion. However, she has been funded by PEDRA for a study on RHYME. Additionally, Dr. Mathis has no relevant disclosures to this discussion. However, she is the author and reviewer for Up to Date, and she has previously done some consulting two years ago, but that is not relevant to this topic. Lastly, Dr. Michelle Ramin has no relevant disclosures to this discussion. She has previously been funded by Pedra Grants Programs. She also consulted two years ago for dermatology products, but not specifically related to RHYME. These include AbbVie, Boehringer Ingelheim, Eli Lilly, Leo Pharma, Pfizer, and Sanofi. In episode one, Dr. Ramin takes us through a brief introduction on blistering severe cutaneous adverse reactions and has a conversation with Dr. Mathis about the importance of distinguishing between RHYME and SJS. Over to you, Dr. Ramin. Thanks so much, everyone, for joining us today to talk about erythema multiforme, reactive infectious mucocutaneous eruption, Steven Johnson syndrome, and toxic epidermal necrolysis, the alphabet soup of severe blistering cutaneous reactions. You might be asking yourselves right now, what are severe blistering cutaneous reactions or blistering scars? 
So really this spans the spectrum of the conditions that were previously described in the 1992 classification of blistering scars described by Bastuji Garay. Um, and these conditions were divided into erythema multiforme, Steven Johnson syndrome, and toxic epidermal necrolysis. Erythema multiforme typically has six typical target lesions on the skin with relatively limited mucosal involvement and tends to have an acral distribution in association with HSV infection. Erythema multiforme is distinct or felt to be distinct from Steven Johnson syndrome and TEN or SGS and TEN, which exist on a spectrum and can be triggered by other infections such as mycoplasma or medications. And these reactions tend to have very severe mucositis of multiple mucous membranes, but with, with significant skin involvement with blisters that spans the range from almost no skin involvement up to uh, full, full skin involvement with detached or detachable skin. And patients who have the very severe form and most cases are drug induced, uh, are also very systemically unwell. What we proposed with our with a recent publication in the British Journal of Dermatology that was uh, published last year was to create pediatric specific definitions that more or less maintained erythema multiforme as that mild form of papular target lesions with minimal mucosal involvement, maintained the TEN end of the spectrum with drug-induced epidermal necrolysis, but really any drug-induced case should fall into that grouping regardless of the skin involvement, but those patients, again, have multiple mucous membranes involved, are systemically unwell, and have a trigger medication that can be identified. But we also created in the, in the middle room for a condition called reactive infectious mucosinus eruption that can be triggered by mycoplasma pneumonia or other respiratory infection and causes a disproportionate amount of mucositis to the limited skin lesions that develop that these patients develop. And the patients typically are, although they can be somewhat sick at the time, they do really well and they don't require a lot of intervention. Um, it's my pleasure to be here today speaking with Dr. Aaron Mathis from UCSF about the controversy sur surrounding Rhyme, Stephen Johnson syndrome, and TEN. So we thought we'd start off with a clinical scenario who's presenting a pediatric patient presenting with their first episode of severe mucositis, maybe with a few skin lesions, and this patient may or may not have had a upper respiratory tract prodrome with exposure to medications for said prodrome. Erin, what would you do in this situation, and what do you call these patients when they turn up in your hospital, in your emergency department? Yeah, thanks, Michelle. I think I would probably use the word reactive infectious mucocutaneous eruption, um, which is we'll call RIME. Um, I think this is the best term to use in a scenario like this, um, especially if it's a younger child or a teenager um, with mucositis and sparse skin lesions and some sort of infectious prodrome or some sort of uh, you know, respiratory symptoms and maybe a fever. But before deciding on that term, I would do a really thorough um, drug history and make sure that there isn't a plausible medication trigger. Um, and then also I would do a really thorough history looking for infectious exposures and possible infectious causes. But I would say the majority of cases that I have seen in 
younger children or young adolescents fit into the rhyme category because there's no plausible medication trigger. Um, and they often have a history of a mycoplasma, mycoplasma pneumonia infection um, or other infection that uh, we ultimately uncover. I like the term rhyme better than MERM, um, which is mycoplasma induced rash and mucositis because MERM confines the trigger to just one infection, whereas rhyme is much broader. And we know that there are lots of different infections that can cause um, a clinical scenario like this. So mycoplasma is, I think, still the most common, um, but there are many reports now of COVID um, causing a clinical scenario like this, in addition to some chlamydia species um, and viral infections with HSV as well. I think it's important to distinguish this clinical scenario from the more common adult presentation, um, which is more likely to be drug triggered. And so that's why I like the word rhyme, um, because in a pediatric population, it's far more likely to be infectious than drug, although you certainly don't want to miss a drug. And so you do need to thoroughly take a good drug history. Thanks so much. I, I feel like I already have so many questions just listening to, um, just listening to your response to that uh, case system. I think the first thing I, that I wanted to highlight for listeners is that Dr. Mathis is one of the one of the authors from the original MERM publications. Am I right? In 2015, yeah. yeah. So is one of the people who coined the original term for this, like now what we consider to be part of that umbrella term of rhyme. The MERM cases are probably one part of that. Uh, the other the other thing that I was curious about as you were talking about the history that you take from these patients is what, what kind of symptoms are you looking for? Like, what is the evidence that you're looking for to make yourself confident that this is rhyme and not something that's medication triggered? Because a lot of these patients have those upper respiratory or maybe pneumonia light symptoms and end up getting antibiotics. So how do we know when it's an infection and when it's medication related? Yeah, great question. I think most of the time you would want to think about whether the drug has is likely to be a cause. Um, and so that involves both the drug itself and then also the timing. And usually the medications that are erroneously blamed for this um, are given too soon, too close to the actual onset of the blistering and the mucositis. Um, and so usually in Stevens-Johnson syndrome, which is triggered by medications or in a toxic epidermal necrolysis or DEN, there's a longer delay between medication and um, clinical symptoms. There is a prodrome associated with Rhyme. Um, and so you could have just malaise and fever as part of the prodrome. Um, there are also cases that have a very clear atypical pneumonia. And so for that, you're looking for fever, cough, chest x-ray findings, um, and or auscultatory findings. And then occasionally you, well, actually not occasionally, hopefully you are able to find a laboratory that confirms, um, a laboratory abnormality that confirms the infection. And so we do mycoplasma PCR um, in addition to viral PCRs to try to find that. I'm trying to think if there's any other, I think it's chest X-ray clinical findings and laboratory findings that confirm the infection. Um, and, and as we've expanded from MERM to RHYME, so a broader 
uh, infectious category, then it gets a little bit, you have more options for how to prove that it's caused by an infection. And so by, and by viral PCR, you mean like the rest, like a respiratory viral PCR rather than HSV necessarily or herpes viruses? Exactly, yeah. So I would do, usually there, most hospitals have a respiratory panel um, that includes things like influenza, rhinovirus, paraflu, RSV. Um, you do want to be very careful because those do vary from hospital to hospital. And so you want to make sure that if mycoplasma pneumonia isn't on that panel, that you order it separately. Yeah, that's a great point, actually, the variability between hospitals, because some people might associate, might assume that it's being run and if, and that if it's not there, it's negative, but in fact, it may not have been run. So that's a really good um, high yield point. And I, I don't know if you want to touch on management at all of these patients. What would you do in that setting of a first episode patient who um, who presents with this prodrome? Do you do you kind of have a sense of how their case is going to progress? Do you like to observe them in the hospital? Do you discharge them home? What's your what's your preferred management for these patients? Yeah, I usually admit on a first episode um, because I think you don't know exactly how bad it's going to get. Um, because certainly there are some patients who um, progress actually pretty substantially in the first couple of days, almost no matter what you do. But certainly if at the outset, outset the patient isn't tolerating um, oral liquids, um, then they need to be admitted. Or if they're having such severe pain that they can't be managed at home, then they need to be admitted. Um, so I usually admit and observe at the minimum there's a controversy about exactly how to treat them and whether to use um, antimicrobials and then whether or not to use anti-inflammatory medicines. I would say for the antimicrobials, if there is a history of something that seems like an atypical pneumonia or cough, fever, things like that, I will treat with azithromycin at the beginning. If the PCR then comes back negative, we sometimes stop treatment if it's only been a couple days. And then if there's a history of HSV, I will sometimes treat with acyclovir as well, or if I think there are any specific clinical findings for HSV. And then I would say we used to use a lot of prednisone um, and use relatively early short courses of prednisone for these patients because we thought it helped with the mucositis. And I do believe it does. We usually use one to two milligrams per kilogram per day and then do it for about five days. We try not to do extended courses because those have been associated with worse outcomes. And I would say now there's a lot of interest in cyclosporin and also a tanercept as effective treatments um, when given early on to prevent progression and um, worsening of the mucositis. So I have used both of those as well. So to, I guess, to kind of just to summarize, if you had an admitted patient with, uh, with clear um, pneumonia symptoms, you would give them an antimicrobial plus minus the anti-inflammatory treatment, depending kind of on the severity. Yeah. Um, is that correct? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Are there that any other correct. tips or tricks that you have for those admitted patients? Like, is there anything that you use, for example, topically or strategies that you use for these patients? Yeah. So I think the, the hardest pieces are the mouth care and the nutrition, um, especially for the very severe cases. If they can't start taking PO um, nutrition pretty soon, within a, usually a day or two, then I push strongly for an NG tube uh, because otherwise they can't heal. 
Um, and so, of course, nobody wants an NG tube, but I do think that it helps with healing and ultimately helps with recovery. So I think that nutrition is super important. And then for mouth care, I'm curious to hear uh, what others do, but we sometimes do dexamethasone, swish and spit. If we think somebody can spit, uh, there's magic mouthwash with uh, Benadryl and um, some sort of a coating agent. Um, all of that is just supportive care. You want to make sure that the lips are really gooped up with um, some sort of emollient, um, just like plain petrolatum. And then in very severe cases, you want to make sure that the corners of the mouth don't become scarred. Um, and so you can use bolsters in the corner of the mouth. You don't want the lips to get too crusty. Um, it's better if they stay moist. Those are all really great uh, practical, practical tips. I'm sure everyone else is taking notes too. I totally agree about the mouthwashes. It's so challenging because they're in so much pain. These patients are usually in so much pain that it's really difficult to get them to, to use the mouthwash. Even if you give them the logic about coating their mucosa and maybe making it more comfortable afterwards, it can be really a challenge. So pain control is the other, I guess, big element with these patients while they're admitted. I, I was curious as you were talking about this. So we're talking about the first episode patient. Um, in, your pa in your experience with patients who have recurrences, you do you find that more often the first episode is more severe because that's been reported in the literature and that or, and or that often the first episode is mycoplasma triggered, but then they might have other triggers afterwards. Is that does that kind of go along with your experience or do you have a different experience? Yeah, that that has been my experience. I do have a handful of cases of a handful of patients who have had recurrences and the reported rates of recurrence are actually quite high in the literature and our paper that we published uh, several years ago now, I, there was, I think, 9% recurrence. Um, well, actually, the what I should say is that the range goes from about 9% recurrence to almost up to 35, 38% in some of the more recent reports. So I always counsel people about recurrence um, because I want them to get in quickly um, when they have, if they have a next episode. I do find that recurrences are milder than the first episode. Um, they're usually shorter, have a shorter hospital stay um, and less morbidity. I don't think we know why, um, but my um, experience is that I, especially if I treat them quickly, um, which usually you can do, so you can start anti-inflammatory treatment more quickly. And I think that helps. I also have had cases where um, they all, all of the episodes were triggered by mycoplasma. And then I've had cases where the episodes were triggered by different things um, or actually more commonly where we couldn't actually figure out what caused the repeat episode to happen. When it comes to those patients that have recurrent disease, recurrent episodes, do you try to see them every time and do you repeat the investigations every time or do you tend to give them a treatment? Once you know what's going on, do you give them a treatment plan that they could use at the first sign? What's, what's your approach with recurrences? And at what point does it become more clear that these are recurrences rather than some other problem? So I, I ask the patients to call me or message me immediately when they think they're having a recurrence and to send photos. Um, I can sometimes get them in for an appointment. And then I, I do if I can, especially with the first recurrence, because I think it's nice to confirm what's going on and to evaluate them in person. For people who have multiple recurrences, which is again, a really small group, but does happen. I do give them a treatment plan um, and I give them a prescription for prednisone usually um, to about one mg per keg to take for five days. 
to try to abort the episode if they can. I also have a patient who has a clear HSV trigger. Um, and so I give him a high dose acyclovir as well um, with his prednisone. So he takes both to try to prevent the episode. I have tried to repeat blood tests and I have varying degrees of success based on usually logistics um, and when people can get in and when they can get to the lab and whether they're in college or whatever. Is there anything, um, if you could, in your ideal world, if you could have blood work on these patients, what would be the things, the blood work, or I guess any testing on these patients that are recurrent, what, what would be the things that you would really want to know about? I think that, well, I'm curious to hear your opinion on this as well, but I think I would be most interested to know their infectious status. I really, I would like to know what the trigger is so that perhaps I could address the trigger in order to prevent future episodes. So I would like things like a respiratory panel or a swab, and then also a mycoplasma um, serologies. So IgG and IgM, and some people use IgA, which you can get, but it takes a long time to result. What I had previously learned as the gold standard for mycoplasma infection is a fourfold titer increase in IgG following in the weeks following the episode. Um, and so that would be great if you could document that, but getting somebody to go to the lab twice is sometimes quite challenging. Um, the PCR right now is also very good and helpful, but it is very sensitive and you can have mm -hmm. mycoplasma in the nasopharynx for months after an infection um, when it's not truly pathogenic. Right. I think there's good literature about that, that the many people are asymptomatic carriers of mycoplasma. And so having that, I think that combination, I totally agree with you, the combination of the serology to show that there's a response to an infection, like presumably an active infection and that the pathogen is there is really important with the PCR. I don't know, is there anything else that you wanted to add, I guess, about RIME? I think it's important to distinguish RIME from SJS for all of the general providers and general dermatologists out there. This is a very frightening condition for many when they are first evaluated in an emergency room or in urgent care or in a general practitioner's office. And I think it's important for everyone out there to know that there is a distinct subset of disease that has a good prognosis that is more commonly seen in a younger population and more commonly has an infectious trigger. And I think that is distinguishes it from Stevens-Johnson, which more likely has a drug trigger more common in adult populations and can progress and have poor outcomes. And so you don't want people to be overly concerned or to tell patients that they have a you know, a 30% mortality risk when that just isn't true for RIME. So um, even when we looked back historically at every case that had been reported in the literature of MERM, um, going back to like the 1940s, the mortality rate was 3%, and that was all pre-modern medical care. Um, so this is a disease that has a good prognosis, it has a distinct population, and it has a distinct trigger. And so I think it's important to distinguish it from SJS. Well, thank you so much for um, sharing your wisdom about RIME. And um, I think also for giving us the context and the practical pearls on management of these patients. And I, and I especially thank you for making a very strong case for why this should become part of every uh, pediatric providers and potentially general dermatologists 
vocabulary. Thanks so much, Dr. Mathis. You're quite welcome. That concludes episode one. Thank you so much to Dr. Ramin and Dr. Mathis. Up next in episode two, listen as Dr. Yvonne Chu plays devil's advocate, making a case for why rhyme doesn't need to be called out as a separate type of blistering severe cutaneous adverse reaction. Support for this podcast comes from Orthodermatologics, an Insight Pharmaceutical Company. This is an independent medical education program. Hydra is solely responsible for all program content and the selection of all presenters, authors, moderators, and faculty. If you like this program and other podcast episodes, please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you have questions about this podcast, please email us at info at and stay tuned for episode two.